Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Discover Strength Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Emmett Hurley. I'm an ACSM and HIT Uni certified personal trainer with Discover Strength. Let's face it, busy people don't have time to waste on exercise that doesn't work. The Discover Strength Podcast focuses on bringing on the best minds in the field of evidence-based exercise, so you can look and feel your best in a fraction of the time. Thank you for joining us, and please enjoy this week's episode of the Discover Strength Podcast. Hey everyone, Logan Hurley here. I'm joined today before we get into this episode with Dr. Doug McGuff by exercise physiologist at Discover Strength, Taylor Melvin. Tay, before we get going on this episode, it's so awesome to have Doug on. Just tell me, what are some of the big things you think our listeners should be paying attention to in this episode? Big takeaways. Yeah. um, Well, Doug McGuff, so first of all, he's one of my favorite thought leaders in the HIIT community um, because he has such a unique combination of really knowledge and experience in both the medical and physician's realm, um, him being an ER doctor, um, and then the exercise practitioner's realm as well. So um, to me, he brings just a really interesting perspective on what productive exercise is, and he has such a wealth of knowledge around the human body. Um, So Number one, just around his understanding of the healthcare system. And then also um, what is the most efficacious way to train and what you can do today to help improve your um, personal health. I think that's great. And guys, we're so excited to bring you this week's episode of the Discover Strength Podcast. Like Tay said, keep an eye out for the thing that makes Doug so unique is he's a practitioner as well as involved with the medical side. So really excited to bring you this week's episode and we look forward to recapping it with you at the end here in just a little bit. Thank you again so much, everyone, for joining us today on the Discover Strength Podcast. I am joined by one of my favorite just people in the whole industry of high-intensity training, and just such an honor to have him here today. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Doug McGuff is a ER physician in South Carolina. He is the author of Body by Science, uh, Bodybuilding Physique in 12 Minutes a Week, Um, He also authored the Body by Science question and answer book. His most recent book um, is called The Primal Prescription, and we are just so honored to have him here today. Uh, Dr. Doug, thank you for joining us, and please uh, introduce yourself. Uh, Logan, it's great to be here. Um, So yeah, like you said, I'm Doug McGuff. I'm an emergency physician. I also run a high-intensity training facility along the same lines as Discover Strength here in South Carolina. It's been open since 1997. Um, so I'm kind of in the same gig that you guys are. And the name of the facility is ultimate exercise for any of our clients that are maybe traveling to the Southeast. I would definitely recommend if pop in, give us a visit. Love to have you. For sure. Uh, if you've got the time on the schedule, I'm sure they'd love to check it out. I'd like to hear what was kind of the impetus for writing Body by Science with, with John Little, and how has that kind of changed how you viewed high-intensity training, how you were kind of viewed in the industry, and then I'd like to kind of segue into the Resistance Exercise Conference last year, a okay. year and a half ago, and um, and kind of take away the, the main part of this discussion. Okay, so... I opened Ultimate Exercise in 1997, and that was just mainly driven by my desire to want to have equipment for myself. It was originally intended just to be brought into my house and put in a bonus space over the garage. And, uh, you know, it it was poorly planned because we figured out it's probably not going to be able to be moved up there or not fall through the kitchen ceiling. Um, so we found some space to put it in and then that just morphed into a personal training facility. Um, but we started to just accumulate experience training clients and started to recognize certain patterns. And from 1997 to the early two thousands, um, we were accumulating experience that kind of ran in opposition to what most of the scientific literature was saying about exercise. We were finding really great results, uh, both in terms of body composition, in terms of cardiovascular conditioning, um, with this brief high intensity exercise. And we found that if you refined the application so that the intensity was 
more and more meaningful that the amount of exercise required was actually less than we had originally thought. So we were starting to scale down the minimum effective dose for our clients and found that in so doing that their results were actually getting better and better. Um, but all of the scientific literature seemed to oppose that. Well, um, between 2000 and 2009, when the book came out, there was a rapid accumulation of literature that was starting to show that harder, more intense exercise done brief, briefly and less frequently was actually able to bear significant fruit. Um, and I actually just had hired the son of my emergency department director just to like scour PubMed. And I had an accordion file with different categories in it um, for how high intensity exercise affected different body systems. I was just filing that stuff away because I thought it was interesting. And I had a conversation. John Little actually called me on the phone to ask a question um, about um, global metabolic conditioning that I had written about in a self-published book. And we had a long phone conversation and he had connection with prior publishing deals with McGraw-Hill. And a few weeks past, he called me back and said, hey, can we do a book together? Would you be willing to do that? And I said, well, yeah, but my time's limited. He says, that's okay. What we'll do is we'll just have phone conversations a couple times a week and we'll just go back and forth and we'll accumulate stuff. I'll type up a manuscript, send it to you, you edit, we go back and forth and we'll just write a book. Love that. And that's kind of how it happened. That's awesome. What was the whole process for that? What did it look like from kind of inception to, to actually getting well, it published? The first part of the process was um, accumulating that literature um, since around you know, 2000, 2001. We had this accordion file full of literature and we wanted to make the book based on scientific literature. And our whole goal in writing the book was high intensity training facilities were starting to flower up all over the country in the early 2000s. But selling the concept was going so much against the grain of what the general public thought about exercise. It was very hard and there was never any argument from authority to back a facility owner up. And our purpose was like, let's generate a book that lays out the argument for brief high intensity exercise and its benefits that is backed up by scientific literature. So that people that own facilities all over the country, when their clients go, eh, this is not really what I've heard. And, you yeah. know, my brother says this and, yeah. You know, um, you know, Newsweek says that you could say, look, here's the literature. There it here's is. Look at this. Um, this actually has some authority to back it up. I wanted the we wanted the fight for rational um, science based exercise to be much less of an uphill battle. And we wanted body by science to give the facility owner um, the opportunity to address client concerns to make them understand this really is the most effective way to exercise. Yeah, so that was our whole goal of writing the book. And the process was I had this literature and we had chapters kind of outlined in our mind and we would set up an appointment once or twice a week. And these would be like two to four hour conversations on the phone where I would pull all this literature John would ask me questions. I would answer them referencing the literature and he would write a rough outline, send it to me, and then we'd fill in the gaps and then that would be a chapter. And That's we'd awesome. do it and do it and do it. The problem was is by the time we got done, the manuscript was probably close to 800 pages. <laughs> and that's what we submitted to McGraw-Hill. And they said, okay, we gotta trim this. We've got to narrow it down until we get this within the 250 page realm. And that's what we did. And the remaining six or 700 pages of material is what we, and because the original thing was done in a question and answer format, gotcha. what got edited out of body by science, we used 
to make the question and answer book. To make the Q&A. That's so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And that's such a helpful complimentary tool as well. Um, you know, I just wanted to point out there, I think it's it's so interesting. You messaged or you, you mentioned Newsweek, right? Just these major magazines and newspapers, which for the longest time were really not proponents of this style of training that we know to be so effective and efficient. And I don't know if you've noticed this shift over the last few years, but we certainly have, and we share it with our our clients on social media all the time, New York Times, Newsweek, all these places are starting to publish the literature um, and publish these little bite-sized pieces about this higher intensity, higher effort training and how efficacious it actually can be. So again, uh, I think that's a perfect segue to you being kind of ahead of the curve. And what I really want to talk to you about today, which is your speech at the, uh, your keynote address at uh, the 2019 Resistance Exercise Conference, which for our listeners that may be aware, uh, REC or the Resistance Exercise Conference is a conference that Discover Strength hosts every year where we bring some of the brightest and best minds in the industry uh, into just discuss a variety of different topics. So can you tell us a little bit about what your actual keynote was? And then I'd love to dive in a little bit more um, to how some of those things have been applicable really in the last year and a half um, since you gave that, that uh, keynote speech. Yeah. So the speech that I gave, I came in with the intention, much like writing Body by Science, um, <clears throat> I wanted to supply the Discover Strength instructors um, and instructors that come out to this conference because it really is the premier conference in our field. Um, I wanted to give those facility owners, those instructors, a real tangible sense that what they do is important, that what we deliver to our clients is truly an invaluable service that um, exceeds almost anything that you can do as a as an occupation or a vocation, that it was very, very important what they did. And I pointed out that, you know, my work as an emergency physician, I considered meaningful. Um, you know, you do go to work, you do do these dynamic interventions that can save lives, but I wanted to let them know that over the years as I've done both professions in emergency medicine and run this facility that delivers high intensity exercise, that when I measure the good that I've done in the world, that I think that much more has been accomplished by doing 100, 150 workouts a week at Ultimate Exercise since 1997 than I've accomplished by what I've done in the emergency department over the same span of time. Because I think that when we look at the crisis that's occurring in American healthcare um, and in the healthcare system, the crisis has been long-standing. The system is on the brink of collapse on a moment-by-moment -moment basis because the health status of the population that we serve has deteriorated to such an extent that I felt that at any given moment, we were one existential crisis away from, from a complete and utter collapse of the system. Okay. And that the health status of the populations in Western societies is overall so poor that there's a very significant swatch of the population that could not survive an, exig an existential crisis for very long. And that the healthcare system at baseline was so much on the brink that any sort of health event or existential crisis if that were to occur, then the system would fail very quickly. Because yeah. before COVID ever hit, our emergency departments were overflowing. All beds were full. Patients were stacked in the hallway. Patients were in the waiting room for six or eight hours. ICUs were full. We had nowhere to put anyone before COVID ever hit. Yeah. So the prediction is that the health status of the population is so poor, if anything triggered us to um, add any ad additional stress to the system, the system would not function well. Yeah. And, and, and again, just burn that I expressed at that time, we had no idea that SARS-CoV-2 was coming. Yeah. Um, 
at the time that I said that, and it seemed prophetic, but it really wasn't. When you're living it on a day-to-day basis, it's it's not a difficult prediction to make, you know. But it's it's even just hearing you describe the state of the emergency rooms that you were typically dealing with on a regular basis. You know, if if you took out the context of where we are right now in 2021, it would almost sound, at least to me, or potentially even the average listener too, that you were describing what was going on for the last year and a half in emergency rooms, right? Yeah. So hearing you talk about these things when we were at the resistance exercise conference was, I think, just such an important wake up call. And like you said, um, just encouraging us in the, the work that we're doing daily as practitioners, because there was over already such an overwhelming burden on the healthcare industry. So what kind of things have you seen? Now, obviously, the healthcare system didn't collapse entirely. Now, maybe that's up for debate a little bit, but I'd just love to hear what the experience was like for you from before uh, COVID into the last year dealing with everything that you've had to deal with on a daily basis. And those people that you maybe identified that were the high-risk groups, right? Um, a lot of these people in, in Western cultures, we've seen rapid obesity growth, right? We've seen uh, comorbidities in, in the sense of uh, cardiovascular diseases and all these things that you were talking about, again, before COVID, now these are the high-risk groups, the high-risk populations that you're seeing on a day-to-day basis when you're in the ER. So what was that experience like for, for the last year for you? Yeah, it was, it's been unusual and it's been, it's been a grind Um, But in terms of day-to-day life in the emergency department, the way that our health system is constructed and everything, it really wasn't a major change in terms of workload and overload and the problems that we've always had. We've always been overcrowded. The ICUs have always been full. We've been managing ICU patients in the emergency departments for more than a decade. I mean, it's been that way regardless. And the experience with COVID has been um, an incremental train wreck in slow motion kind of experience. So in the early days of it, um, it was actually much easier than what we had been experiencing chronically because everyone was afraid and people were staying away from the emergency departments. Our volumes dropped by like 50%. And all we were seeing was COVID and COVID-related presentations. And that was scary in the beginning because we didn't really have a sense of the level of contagion. We didn't know if this was purely droplet spread, aerosol spread, how much fomite spread there could be. So in the early stages, um, you know, we were really aggressive with the PPE and the isolation. Um, you know, I was completely, you know, I was going in, changing clothes, showering at work, changing back into a separate set of clothes. We had a separate area in my house that I was quarantined into. I stayed away from my family. It was a complete isolation, lockdown, wipe down Clorox spray kind of experience for the first few months of it. So um, April, March, April, and May, um, we saw, uh, particularly April and May, it started to hit hard in our region, saw a lot of people, a lot of respiratory failure, a lot of deaths, a lot of intubations. Um, And then it started to trail off. Um, I think there was a little bit of a feeling that this is on the way out. Um, And then in the summer, we had a resurgence. But by that time, the public's fear of coming to the emergency department with the more routine presentations that we were used to seeing had gone away. So now we were back to about 85, 95% of our normal emergency department volume. But then we laid a secondary spike of COVID on top of it that was in terms of volume and severity was higher than the original presentation. So pretty much from summertime until about three to four weeks ago, it was um, much worse than baseline emergency medicine practice. 
Um, you had the day-to-day -day experience of working in the emergency department, but you had to layer on top of it the cognitive load, cognitive fatigue, and physical component of just having to be so vigilant, to having to don and doff PPE, to be very careful, you know, just taking off an N95 mask and accidentally letting go of the rubber band and popping yourself in the face or in the eye, and you're like, oh, no, kind of thing. And being yeah. vigilant enough to not catch it um, was just, it, it's just a grind. And now, you know, it's been probably three weeks since I've had a positive COVID test come back. So I'm hoping that this isn't another false lull and we don't have another spike that I hope that we're nearing the end of this, but it's been a long and drawn out slog. Yeah. Um, the peculiar thing about the talk that we had at the REC conference and what actually unfolded in the following year was that not only did we have an existential, existential crisis that was the straw breaking the camel's back like I had predicted, the peculiar behavior of this virus was that it expressed itself most severely in people that had poor metabolic health. So people that were obese um, and had metabolic syndrome tend to tended to have the worst clinical presentations, um, the more severe um, consequences and uh, the higher morbidity and mortality. Um, so the subsegment of the population that was already stressing the emergency department was the same population that was doing so poorly um, with the presentation of this pandemic. So, so essentially the people you were seeing on a day-to-day -day basis anyways that were presenting, you know, all the, all the issues that come with um, right. morbid obesity. Yep. Gotcha. No, the ones that have always stressed the system were now stressing the system with a vengeance. Even more. Yep. And maybe some of those that maybe hadn't yet become a, a burden on the healthcare system for whatever reasons are now kind of um, unfortunately part of the, the consequences of this disease that seems to target those people so frequently. This, Correct. I, I think, is anything to push them over the tipping point, and this was it. Yep. And so. Kind of multiple thing. multiple straws breaking multiple camels back is essentially the 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 yeah. uh, takeaway I'm getting here. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about this interrelation between um, exercise, whether it's high intensity training, any form of smart efficient exercise, and how people can um, how it interrelates with the healthcare system, right? What can people do? Now, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. It might be a little too late to prevent that first wave, everything that we've gone through in the last year, but what are the lessons that maybe you've even learned since you came to the resistance exercise conference um, that, that our listeners can take away and keep it in mind, not the practitioners this time, right? So we're not talking to the people who, who you and I right. both agree are doing the great work, but what can we say to our listeners um, that maybe just look at their workouts a little more casually, right? They enjoy coming in and getting an efficient workout. I'd love to hear you uh, talk to them about why the things that they're doing are so important or what else they can be adding on to, to even prepare them more. Yeah. So one thing you can tell clients is that your any contribution that you can make to this bigger societal problem is almost purely a component of what you do for yourself as an individual. That's the biggest contribution that you can make to our society and to the healthcare system as a whole. And that the simple actions that you take as an individual have the greatest impact for your health, because when we look at all of the diseases of modern Western societies, those diseases are very much largely an expression of chronic systemic inflammation. Um, and everything that made COVID such a severe illness were related to the expression of that disease in the context of a population that has issues with chronic systemic inflammation. So when you're doing high intensity exercise, we see the results that are visible. 
we see that our muscles get bigger, our body fat tends to drop, our body composition improves, we look better in the mirror, we feel more energetic, we're obviously stronger and we function better. But those are all the visible adaptations that occur as a result of performing meaningful exercise. There are a lot of adaptations that precede that that aren't visible. And mainly what science is just now coming to understand is that the skeletal muscle is actually the largest and most active endocrine organ in the body. And what that means, what an endocrine organ is, is an organ that secretes hormones or chemicals that signal other tissues in the body to behave in an optimal fashion. And it turns out that skeletal muscle is the tissue in the body that sends out the most beneficial chemical signals to other organs in the body that have downstream positive health benefits. And this is a relatively new revelation, correct? Yes. Um, yeah. So that's probably not even come to fruition until after Body by Science was published. Yeah. Um, and that's largely it's the, the term for those um, chemical signals are myokines. And that's basically all tissues can re release chemical signals called cytokines. Um, there's inflammatory cytokines. There are anti-inflammatory cytokines. And um, the anti-inflammatory cytokines almost, not completely, but almost completely are released through working skeletal muscle. The inflammatory cytokines are largely um, released from precursors that exist in stored body fat. So to the extent that exercise helps to optimize body composition, you were also in an undetectable fashion, optimizing the chemical signaling in the body so that all of the tissues of the body work harmoniously and work in a fashion that opposes um, disease states. Yep. So by essentially working on your skeletal muscle through high intensity strength training, you're seeing this huge immersion of downstream effects, right? So we see the six pack, we end up actually doing a great thing for our entire organism. Right. Kind of take away there. Um, and you don't have to have the six pack for yep. those benefits to accrue. Um, the process of getting there accrues those benefits the moment that you start. Um, the thing that differentiate, you know, if you look at the categorization of all living things, the kingdoms are animalia and plantae. The thing that distinguishes animals is movement. Movement is our most preserved biologic function. It's how we get food. It's how we keep from becoming food. So the skeletal muscle is the actual linchpin for every component of human health. So to the extent that you can meaningfully engage muscle, to challenge it, to fatigue it, to activate it, triggers the muscle to release all these beneficial chemical signals that work on the rest of the body, that signal all the other tissues in the body in a beneficial way that is actually an amplification cascade. So the downstream benefits are amplified as they are accrued. Um, so as soon as someone embarks upon a training program at Discover Strength, they've already set that process into motion. They have set themselves up to win. They have, you are now, in the process of emptying out the largest glucose reservoir in your body, which is skeletal muscle. You are establishing good insulin sensitivity. You are signing, sending out chemical signals that optimize fat metabolism, that optimize the mobilization of stored body fat to be metabolized through the mitochondria to produce high levels of energy. Um, you are optimizing all of your metabolic machinery so that your body composition spontaneously and organically moves towards a um, setup 
that allows you to function optimally. And that, that is an organic and spontaneous process that is triggered when you wake up this active genotype that's buried within our muscle. So it's just a matter of activating it and setting it in process. So I, I love this, this whole idea here, uh, Dr. McGuffin. I just want to try to recap this for you and see if you agree with a couple of big takeaways that I've, I've kind of taken from what you just stated there. The biggest thing we can all do, if you haven't already, is just start right? Start doing some kind of effort uh, with your muscles, obviously doing the type of training that we would advocate at Discover Strength or Ultimate Exercise is a great way uh, to take that first step. Reading a book like Body by Science, if you don't have access to a facility to really give you the tools to start doing these things productively. And then the bigger picture, the thing I want to, I want to see if you like this analogy and can get on board with it is you know, I come from the generation of, of save the world, right? We have to recycle. We have to uh, make sure that we're cutting up our plastic so that it doesn't get caught up the turtle's noses, right? And these are all admirable causes. But I think, and I hope you agree with this, if we want to save the healthcare system, if we want to do our part for the larger good of our community as a whole in Western society, you have to take responsibility for yourself, Right. So you're doing those same little things that somebody who would make sure that they're recycling on a regular basis would do. But for your body, um, and even though it might not seem like it's making a huge impact initially, if everyone takes responsibility the same way we would advocate for recycling or cleaning up a beach or whatever it might be, then we can see a huge impact downstream on the system as a whole. Would you agree with that statement or would you kind of change change the analogy at all? Yeah, no, I like the analogy, and I think it's important for people to realize. I mean, my dad said to me one time, the best way that you can help the poor is to not be one of them. Yeah. And I think the best way to help the healthcare system is to stay the hell out of it um, because, you know, it's overburdened at baseline, and to the extent that you cannot contribute to that burden, you do the most that you can to help that system. So to the extent that you can keep yourself out of the belly of that beast is the best way that you can help the system as a whole. And in so doing, um, you also achieve the most change on a wider basis because the best sermon is a good example. So really by not focusing so much on your circle of concern, but instead focusing on your circle of influence as it pertains to yourself, that's the way that you can make the greatest contribution to the aggregate. I love so that. I think if people focus as individuals on how can I best manage my health, they're going to make the best contribution to societal systems by their actions as an individual. So how would you advocate for someone to, to start on this journey? Because I'm sure you see something similar at Ultimate Exercise all the time. Is there still a lot of misinformation out there on what actually constitutes exercise and what actually constitutes effective exercise like we're kind of addressing here? So if somebody is maybe not familiar with a place like Discover Strength, they just happen along this podcast, they think they have to do their five days a week of 30 to 45 minutes of cardiovascular training, three to four four days a week of, you know, an hour to an hour and a half of weights, what, what kind of advice would you give that person to just get started and start taking, um, you know, control of, of their health and their life? Yeah, I think um, I would always encourage people to have a strong bias towards action. So not to suffer from paralysis by analysis, but instead to simply get started, even if it's a simple, something as simple as just doing some freehand calisthenics at home. You can just start by doing some slow controlled push-ups from the floor or against a countertop. You can do some slow controlled deep knee bends until you get feeling like you're having a relatively meaningful level of exertion where it actually gets hard or where the movement starts to bog down because it's getting difficult. 
just going to that level is enough to set the process in motion to get you started. And then you can build from there. But I think have a strong bias towards action. Just start and just do something. It doesn't have to be perfect. It does not have to be state of the art. Skeletal muscle is ancient and it's highly adaptive. And the stimulus that you apply does not have to be perfect to set the beneficial effects in motion. So if you just simply get started by some means, um, you will start to reap the benefits almost immediately. So I think um, I would just say, just get started with something, whatever that is. And what would you say, if anything, as somebody who's so involved on both ends of the spectrum, right, in the studio, working with clients on a day-to-day basis, plus also seeing kind of the um, catastrophe that is the, the healthcare system at the moment, do you think there's anything that the healthcare system could do to promote positive um, activities for um, potential patients? Or is there anything you think that just the healthcare system in general could really start to advocate to people to, to try to defer um, all of this uh, burden on the system? Or is it just too big to, to make that happen? Yeah, right now, I would not depend on the healthcare system to necessarily accomplish that per se. For a couple of reasons. One is the system is so preoccupied and on the brink dealing with the people where the wheels are falling off. Um, You know, it's hard to think proactively about how you can um, deal with this in a preventative fashion when you're in crisis management mode all the time. Um, So I think the healthcare system currently is just so busy dealing with in-stage wheels falling off like the Blues Brother car at the end of the movie. (laughs) I'm trying to keep that thing duct taped back together. It's very hard for them to function in this realm. But I think that at least at the primary care level, just some sort of emphasis on... um, doing something and doing something that's going to stress the system a little bit and not being fearful of bringing the intensity level up to a point where the time commitment for exercise does not become so extreme. Mm -hmm. I think just a trending in that direction is going to be very, very beneficial. And we're already seeing that. And that swing in the literature that happened right around the time that body by science came out, didn't occur because science was discovering anything or we were making really good arguments. It really occurred because one generation of scientists was either retiring or dying and dying and a new generation was coming up. So now you have people like, you know, the group at, uh, you know, McMaster's in Canada that's doing all the research on high intensity interval training. Um, We got the two Jameses. And uh, David Smith and other researchers that came up through the same sort of backdrop and experience that you and I have that had different hypotheses that they wanted to test because of their background and their experience and having read Arthur Jones and come up with this sort of stuff and having heard the arguments and saying, well, let's actually scientifically test this and finding out that the empirical observations were actually correct, that when you stress tested them, when you tried to disprove the hypothesis via the scientific method that you were unable to do so and the hypothesis was therefore actually correct, now we're accumulating these mounds and mounds of literature that are now finally making their way into Newsweeks and the larger cultural zeitgeist. So now when you have a new client that shows up at Discover Strength, the amount of talking and convincing that you have to do to get someone on board with high intensity, brief exercise done infrequently is actually the best way to get where you're going is a much, much easier process now than it was even 10 years ago. Yeah. It's less about convincing them to, to trust you and, you know, believe in what you're saying and more about, no, I've got it right here. The Jameses. And what what your clients will find and what we have, discovered along the path is when I originally opened up ultimate exercise, the philosophy was don't do anything else. 
Yeah. Save all of your recovery for high intensity exercise and don't do anything else. So we tried to like hold our clients back. And what we found is once we got a client 30 or 40% stronger, they went bonkers. Yeah. Their activity levels went through the roof. They started doing 10Ks. They started running, started taking up sports. They could not be restrained. And it was a losing proposition because what we've come to discover is once you meaningfully challenge skeletal muscle and it makes these adaptations, human activities levels spontaneously and organically increase. And once that happens, people don't have to wear a Fitbit and count up their steps and go, God, I got to do 2000 more steps today to make my 10,000. They will spontaneously and organically rise to that activity level. Your clients will find this. If you come and start working out at Discover Strength, within six, eight weeks, all of a sudden your activity level just goes through the roof and you start doing things. Yeah. Because the bottom line is the human animal is like a Jack Russell Terrier. <laughs> Unless it gets the requisite amount of activity in a day, it's going to tear the stuffing out of your couch. Yeah. Um, if you get people... If you try to force people to get to that activity level without the underlying conditioning of the skeletal muscle, it's a horrible slog to try to get it done. But once you get to this level of skeletal muscle conditioning, those level of activity that everyone says is good for you starts to happen spontaneously and you don't even realize you're doing it until you're doing it. Yeah. And all this is like, what's happened to me? I will yeah. not stand and wait for an elevator. I'm not going to do that. You know, I can't sit still or I'm going to go out. And it's like, it's a beautiful day out. I'm going out for a hike, you know? Yeah. And, and we see that over and over again. And I'm sure you do as well as again, the, the conception or the misconception is that people come in and they think they have to do everything at once. And just like you, you know, beautifully explained there, it's, no, let's focus on this first. I guarantee you, if you stick with this, if you give it uh, an honest effort and you work as hard as you can every time I see you twice a week for 30 minutes, that activity level is going to increase. Um, you're going to start telling me that, hey, I signed up for, like you said, a 10K or a 5K or, man, I just signed up for my first marathon. I haven't done one of those in 10 years. I feel amazing. Wow. And if I can get somebody to just focus on the task at hand for six weeks, eight weeks, three, four months beforehand, they get that baseline going. And, and it's hard. It's almost to the point where I'm sure you've experienced like, Hey, Hey, give me something, save something for your workouts, Doug, you know, you're, you're biking 50 miles before you come in. So it's a pretty cool experience. Um, to, and it does, to have guys experience this, your clients know it as well, is that once you set this in motion, that happens reliably. Yeah. Here is a study idea for the Jameses that you guys could do. I'm sure they're listening. Just tap into your client's cell phones when they start. And a lot of times these people are doing three, four or five workouts a week, or they're doing something that's time consuming. Once you come to someone that knows how to apply the stimulus to skeletal muscle to actually get a reliable adaptation, then these activity levels spontaneously increase. I bet you dollars to donuts. If you tap into people's cell phones, and you check their screen time on social media, that by week eight or 12, their screen time is gonna plummet because they're not gonna sit around, farting around on Instagram or Facebook if it's a sunny day outside. Because those spontaneous activity levels are gonna drive them to be doing other things. Well, you you have to remember, Doug, you're in South Carolina. It's not the same here in Minnesota in the winter, so. you got a pretty active clientele regardless. We definitely, we definitely do. Um, well, I'd love to just start to kind of wrap this up. I, I think the biggest takeaway here 
um, that I've been kind of hearing from you is, is almost this libertarian idea around your health and fitness, right? Take responsibility for the things you can control. Do smart, safe, effective exercise a few times a week. You'll see your health improve. You'll see those downstream effects um, that, that just sort of happen before even the waistline changes, right? And I'd love to just see if you have any closing thoughts around this issue. And then I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about some other things that you're working on. Um, maybe tell our, our listeners a little bit uh, more where they can find you, plug some of your books if you've got the time for that. Sure. Um, so I think the best message that can be given to the clients is that um, – actually challenging skeletal muscle in a meaningful way will set into motion all of these beneficial effects. So much of what is done in the world of modern exercise is a reversal of cause and effect. They're trying to take the downstream effect as a cause. They're trying to get you to be more active through willpower, through an artificial construct of you know, getting on the treadmill or doing this, that, or the other thing a certain amount of time and to accumulate time under activity without recognizing that the motor that drives all that process is the skeletal muscle. And to produce these beneficial adaptation actually requires a level of intensity that therefore requires that the duration be relatively short. So the time efficiency is baked into the cake the fact that it's hard enough to be time efficient actually triggers the adaptations that result in the downstream effect that's actually being applied as the cause. So if you do it right, all of this will happen without so much force of willpower. It will occur, occur spontaneously and organically. So I would just encourage anyone that's a client at Discover Strength just really to focus on bringing your concentration to your workout and doing the best that you can right there. Because in those 20 to 30 minutes, you are going to set the stage for success during the entire rest of the week by having put into motion these beneficial adaptations. And I think that's the important message. And from a wider standpoint of doing good, really the best good that you can do is by the good that you do in yourself. Um, cause then your burdens upon the system as a whole go away and you set an example of how life can be lived. Um, and people really respond to that and clients will notice that once they're eight or 12 weeks in, even if they don't feel like they've had significant changes in the mirror, the imperceptible biological signals that come across is like, Something's different about this person. They're healthy. Their posture's better. They seem happy. All of those biological signals radiate out from you. And by sending those sort of signals, you're sending inspiration to other people to do what you're doing. And that's the way that you can have the biggest effect. Yeah, that's, um, that's awesome. With regard to your second question, um, I'm still just doing what I do um, right now. I've really... Um, I've relied a lot on high intensity training and, um, it's effects both psychological and physical to kind of get through the whole process of working as a frontline healthcare worker through this whole pandemic. I could not have done this without that. I promise you that. Yeah. And I, I don't want to cut you off there, but such an important point, Dr. McGuff, it's the the mental benefits that that we've noticed from our clients and the things that they've been able to share with us over the last year of yeah. how important their workouts have been and I'm sure you've noticed this as well to not just their physical health but their mental health with the things that everybody's been been dealing with um, so we've got body by science body yeah. by science question and answer book primal prescription Uh, which came out in 2015 that I just started reading, uh, which I'm really enjoying so far. If you guys want to learn a little bit more uh, about the healthcare system and where things have maybe gone wrong, are you working on any other books at the moment? I'm not currently working on any books. I've I've always intended to write another one, um, this time trying to incorporate the new science surrounding myokines. It was not available at the time we wrote Body by Science, but uh, especially with uh, what's happened with the pandemic over the last year. 
that's kind of uh, sucked some of that time away, but I would like to do that in the future. Um, I'm still active, you know, in the community. I'm still doing phone consultation. That can be accessed through the website, which is drmcguff.com or drmcguff.com. Um, anyone that ever wants to phone consult with me, I'm happy to do that. Um, it's a big part of what I do, and I enjoy it. I enjoy doing podcasts like with you guys. Well, we, we are so privileged to have you on today, sir, and it's been such a pleasure to see you. I would advocate for everyone to, to check out a copy of Body by Science. Definitely read The Primal Prescription. If you've never seen any of Doug's stuff before, he's all over YouTube. I highly recommend his videos from the 21 Convention. And again, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McGuff, and thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with another brand new podcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining Thanks us today. Appreciate it. Thanks everyone for sticking around for this week's episode of the Discover Strength Podcast with Dr. Doug McGuff. So excited to have you here joined again today by Taylor Melvin, uh, one of our most senior trainers at Discover Strength. Tay, I'd love to hear just initial big takeaways, um, things that you liked about the episode, things maybe you learned that you you didn't know before. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate his perspective as an ER physician. Um, and I love his message around taking personal responsibility for your health as really the best way to combat the crisis that that is the American healthcare system. Um, I think it can feel, at least for me, um, pretty overwhelming when you see and hear about hospitals being overrun and ICUs being at capacity. Um, and I'm talking about pre-COVID times, like he was mentioning, um, you know, like heart disease is still the number one killer in the world, um, along with, you know, the cardiometabolic diseases um, and cancers. So there's this huge ongoing epidemic of disease that is influenced by lifestyle. Um, and I think it's really easy as a trainer, um, you know, as us trainers, we kind of live in this bubble where, you know, that is the gym or the strength studio. Um, where we're surrounded by like-minded people who, who engage in fitness and prioritize exercise that I think it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that most people do not meet the minimum daily requirements of, of physical activity. Um, I was reading a, a book from David Sinclair, uh, Lifespan, that came out in 2019, and he said only 10% of the population over 65 years of age uh, meets that minimum daily requirement, which is abysmal right yeah. um, it still blows my mind that there's still people out there that do not exercise let alone engage in resistance exercise so. yeah and i think it's it's so important what doug is is preaching and, and the types of things we talk about at discover strength with our clients that it's not even necessarily about meeting those uh, minimum daily requirements, it's, you know, as Doug put it, it's doing something, right? It's starting that process in motion. And, you know, it is abysmal, the the activity rates in this country. But it's encouraging to see that just a little bit can kind of start that process in the right direction. And, and I agree with you. I love this idea of personal responsibility and just doing your part to unburden the healthcare system, right? You know, I, I think what, uh, what Doug said, if, if I remember correctly, was the best thing you can do for healthcare is stay out of the system, right? And one of the things I love that that he talked about, obviously, when he came to the resistance exercise conference, he was addressing us as, as trainers and how important the work we are is doing, which is great and an awesome ego boost. But I think the important thing here for, for listeners to realize is how important the work is that they're doing, right? Every time they show up for their Discover Strength workout and they give it 100%, even if they give it 50% if they slept bad and they're not feeling it that day, they're doing their part to really, you know, try to contribute to the greater good, if you want to call it that. So, you know, I just love hearing Doug talk. He's, he's so inspiring to me, but, but please keep going with some other, other takeaways and, and points. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, it's about your circle of influence, right? It's, that's how we framed it. Um, and understanding that it's never too late to start resistance training as well. Um, and you're never too old to start reaping the benefits. Um, and in fact, it's even more important with, with age. Um, another point that he mentioned um, that I wanna touch on is, is so Doug emphasized, um, you know, we, we still have such an emphasis on the visible benefits of, of 
resistance exercise, right, as a reason to engage in it. Um, and maybe that started back in the 70s with the bodybuilders and, you know, everyone just associated strength training with getting bigger and looking good. Um, so it's really easy to lose sight of those non-visible benefits that he mentioned, like um, the, the secretion of myokines, which is a really new area of research in strength training, you know, that that's showing that muscle is actually an endocrine organ um, and has incredible downstream effects and positive benefits and anti-inflammatory benefits. Um, but really, so the number one reason people come to discover strength in my experience and what I've heard is people come to improve their body composition, right? So they wanna decrease fat, they wanna increase in muscle tissue, um, whether it's for health or, or aesthetic reasons. Um, and that's great, like that's a noble goal and resistance training can absolutely help you do that. Um, but what I've also seen many times is that clients getting really disheartened when they don't achieve those visible goals um, to the point where they even stop engaging resistance exercise because they aren't seeing the 10 pound weight loss um, or they're plateauing in the amount of muscle mass they've gained. So it's the message that body composition or how you look in the mirror is really just one of the myriad of benefits of, of proper exercise and rather try, just shifting your mindset to the holistic benefits of resistance training when you're dealing with those plateaus, okay? Because really bigger biceps are great, but just by showing up to every workout day in, day out, you're setting into effect those powerful cascading event, events in your body that are just positively benefiting every aspect of your being. And, and honestly, that starts the minute you engage in productive exercise. Yeah, such, you know, amazing articulation of all those points today. And just such a powerful sentiment, like you said, for our clients who come in, you know, I think one of the things Doug talked about that I'm sure you and I have both seen over and over again, is this natural increase in activity that people experience when they come in. Now we have obviously a lot of type A people that come to us that are really, we need to bring it down a couple notches when they come in for the first time, right? They're already running a marathon a week and, you know, biking all over the place and they're wondering why they're burnt out. But the other type of client, one of the other types of the many types of clients we get in are those people that are sedentary and they just don't feel good. And they, they want to get up and go for a walk and they want to hang out with their grandkids or, or their kids or whatever it might be. They just want to feel better and feel more active. And the thought of meeting the daily requirements of movement, like we talked about, just seems so overwhelming and daunting to them. And regardless of what their body comp changes are over the first month, two months, six months of training with Discover Strength, almost inevitably what I've seen, and you know, Doug echoed this, and I'm sure you can echo the same sentiment, is that if they stick with it, if they're training with us twice per week regularly, they're showing up, they're giving 100%, even if they're not making crazy changes in the rest of their lifestyle, eventually they come in and they say, hey, Tay, you know what? I, I just went out and went for a five-mile walk this weekend. I haven't done that in six years. I just uh, you know, hopped on my old bike. I dusted it off and, and went for a ride around the block with my grandkids. I haven't done that in ages. And before you know it, again, regardless of if they're getting the six-pack, regardless of if they're getting the bigger biceps, they're starting to feel better. They're starting to move more. And that to me is is the signal that, like you said, your body is making all of those positive physiological adaptations, whether you're seeing it in the mirror or not. Um, so just so encouraging and, and such a, a positive thing that he pointed out there that, you know, that movement just happens naturally. And we see it over and over again. And it's just so, so rewarding from a trainer's perspective to see people really take control of their life and their activity and just feel better, you know? <laughs> Yeah, 100% agree with you. Yeah, I loved how we framed that basically that you start with your baseline, your foundation as resistance exercise condition the underlying muscle. And then it's only going to be easier to achieve all those other goals you have in life, whether it's picking up your grandkids or running a marathon, right? Yeah, 100% Logan. Yeah. So talk to me any other, I know you mentioned um, when we were first sitting down, some of the things that you've noticed from a, a physician's perspective that, that Doug pointed out, as far as maybe recommending exercise to clients, um, some things that they might uh, happen across with their primary care doctor, for instance. Um, you know, Doug mentioned a lot of times people are hesitant to recommend this type of activity. What have you come across in your experience as a trainer? Um, how 
have you navigated that road of like, hey, this is the best thing you can do for yourself, but also respecting, um, you know, their primary care and what their doctor might be saying? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, like I've always, you know, I've seen this many times with, uh, with my experience with clients. Um, and, and Doug kind of taps into this too. We, we really hold physicians in such an authority on the human body that for some reason, we also give them the authority to then prescribe exercise or, or give guidance on exercise when in their field, they are really not staying current and up to date with the literature of, of what's effective, what's safe, efficient exercise. Um, and so in my, again, in my experience, I've seen clients come in um, and get um, guidance from their doctors saying they're weary of the amount of intensity in, in their strength program um, or, or being fearful of lifting more than 10 pounds um, in certain movements. Um, and so I thought what Doug was saying was a really good point. And especially with him being a, a physician himself to not be fearful of, of intensity, um, really because you know, we know from the current research that, that intensity is a really an important factor in receiving the benefits of resistance exercise. Um, so by all means, you know, this not, does not mean don't listen to your doctor. Like yeah. that's really important. Um, but I think that it can, some things can be challenged, um, in that aspect. And then also knowing you have resources. So talk to your trainer, if, um, you have some questions around what your, your physician is telling you. Tate, such a great point. And, and like you said, I mean, we're not telling you to go against the guidance of what your primary care or really any of your doctors are saying. But I think what you, you just brought up is such an important point is that a lot of uh, medical doctors aren't staying up to date on the most recent research in the field of evidence-based exercise, right? So this is not to say you should go against the recommendations of your doctor, but you can ask your trainer for advice, how to bring these topics up, direct them to places like the Discover Strength website, have them look at, you know, buy them a copy of Body by Science so they can actually see, um, you know, a valid uh, scientific backed up program of, of where all this research is actually coming from. And I think the biggest thing when it comes to intensity, just that word scares off a lot of people, right? But as you and I both know, intensity is a very relative term, right? You can get a lot of uh, benefits from your strength training routine with a relatively high level of intensity. Now that might be significantly lower than somebody who has no comorbidities, who's got no health issues at all, and is going in there trying to kill themselves for 30 minutes, right? But if you show up and you work hard, whatever that is for you, over the long term, you'll see that intensity level rise. And I've yet to meet someone, and this is not to say that this person doesn't exist, but I've yet to meet a person who had enough contraindications that there wasn't something we could offer them at a place like Discover Strength. There wasn't some way to work around um, any issues that might that they might have. Uh, and again, not saying going against the advice of your of your um, primary care doctor, but just realizing that doing something to strengthen your muscles, the organs that keep you moving through the world is such a beneficial thing to do. Whether you train at a place like Discover Strength or or like Doug said, you know, just doing some push-ups on the counter, you know, doing some deep knee bends uh, until you work up a sweat, right? Anything that you can do to really start to send that signal to your body that it needs to change, that things are things are changing around here, right? We're trying to get better. We're trying to get healthier. That's the most important uh, piece. And I think that's the biggest takeaway I had from this, the sit down with Doug was, you know, regardless of, of what the program of action is, take some action, you know, take that personal responsibility, um, start to do something to, to get those improvements um, in your health in the long term. Any other big takeaways you want to share before we wrap this up here quick? Um, no, I think you said it perfectly. Yeah, have that bias towards action. Um, and honestly, I think one of the biggest contributions Doug McGuff has made is that time is no longer an excuse if you want to exercise, yeah. right? Like that's probably the biggest um, thing is creating that paradigm shift around honestly, less is more when it comes to resistance exercise and you can gain incredible benefits for your health and wellness in literally what is it? 12 minutes a week. He says, yeah, <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, Tay, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate your insight and it's so great to finally have a, a female voice on the podcast. We'll definitely get you back on. Um, you know, just always, always a pleasure to train with you as well. And guys, if you've not had a chance to train with Taylor at our Plymouth location, sometimes she's at St. Louis park as well. Uh, definitely hop on her schedule. If you haven't had the chance before she's phenomenal and we'll kick your butt uh, in more ways than you can imagine. So Tay, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to reach out if you've got any questions, uh, like share and subscribe, and we look forward to seeing you in a couple more weeks on the next episode. Thanks everyone. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We hope you continue to tune in to catch up on the most important information in the field of evidence-based exercise. If you love the Discover Strength podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to reach out to me at logan at discoverstrength.com for comments or guest ideas. Please also like and subscribe on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Help us spread the word of smart, efficient training, and we'll continue to help you look and feel your best in a fraction of the time.